welcome back to Telegnosis and Tea. I'm your host, Tess, and I am finally back. My voice isn't 100% there, um, but I'm still back. For If you haven't been following on uh, Twitter, I had to get a COVID test because I had a cold. I just got the results back today, turns out. It was just a cold. Thank goodness. Not COVID. That was a relief. Um, so I'm back now and ready to talk about our topic for today. But before I get into that, I finally found the Bear Bells. This has been the haunting that has happened recently to me. Uh, little Spirits came back, I assume, because... So I couldn't find the Bear Bells, which I've talked about in the Krampus episode, and you're going to hear about in the Christmas episode, which we already filmed, already recorded, and it will come out on December 24th or earlier if you are part of the Patreon, patreon.com slash T. But I had Bear Bells go missing. They were my mom's Bear Bells, and I couldn't find the Bear Bells. And then... I was looking for my Fitbit watch, and I couldn't find that either. It was just also disappeared. So, for a while, I was looking, and I mean, looking hard, like underneath couches, uh, literally everywhere, for these stupid bear bells, and for the watch, and then finally I found them. They are, they were just sitting on top of the dresser as if, I don't know, they've been there all along, but they hadn't, and I'd looked there 50 times, and they just suddenly appeared. So thanks, little spirits, I guess, for bringing them back. Oh, and the bear bells and the Fitbit were together, like, just all in the same spot. Um, Just a heads up, I've had to have cough syrup so I wouldn't cough during this, uh, during this episode. It's still going to be a good episode because I've done so much research on this, but... If uh, my brain is a little spacey in the beginning, I don't know. Maybe I'll just cut this all out. We'll see. We'll see how bad it is. But anyway, the Fitbit and the Bear Bells were just sitting together on top of the dresser in plain sight. I don't know. I have no explanation besides haunted. It's just haunted. I hope everyone's been keeping well. This has been a crazy, weird, wacky year. And am I ever glad it's going to be 2021 soon? I know that doesn't make a difference. Like, this shit's just going to keep happening into 2021. But for some reason, I think that it's going to make a difference. And I think it's going to be better. Also, I have this in my notes that mention I'm COVID-free, which is good. I'm, I'm okay. But how the, how the fuck did I get a cold? With all of the stuff that's going on to prevent... Getting COVID? How did I still get a cold? What happened? There's so many measures in place to not get COVID and I still got like a, a cold? So weird. I tried to make this intro not too long because I didn't want to just ramble on and because I have so much information for this episode that it's going to be a longer episode anyway just based on all the, all the in-depth analysis that I've been doing and I realized that this might not be everybody's cup of tea. Um, this is going to be super history focused, which I love and I find fascinating. But if you don't find it fascinating, I'm not going to be offended. This is all about the Voynich Manuscript. If you haven't heard of it, then 
joined the boat because until about two weeks ago, I'd never heard of it either. And then I was looking at the world's greatest mysteries and this came up and I was fascinated. And we'll get into it because it is very interesting. We're going to get into it right after I tell you about what tea I'm drinking. I am drinking peppermint tea to try and make my nose not so stuffy. Um, If I sound like I have a super stuffy nose, I'm sorry. I promise that I'm okay. Just a cold, just a head cold. Just the change of seasons, maybe. I don't know. But I'm drinking peppermint tea if you want to have a tea with me. But let's get into the Voynich Manuscript. What is the Voynich Manuscript? The Voynich Manuscript is an illustrated codex that is handwritten in an unknown and very possibly meaningless language slash writing system. This is just going to be a quick brief overview. Man, this is going to take some editing because I, I took cough syrup and I still have to keep coughing. So if the volume or the recording changes, it's because I had to stop for a bit to catch my voice. Okay, so continuing the overview. The Voynich Manuscript was carbon dated to the 15th century. Specifically, it was created between 1404 and 1438. So it is believed to have been composed in Italy during the Italian Renaissance. The name Voynich for Voynich Manuscript came from Wilfred Voynich, who is a Polish book dealer who purchased the book in 1912. We'll get into that more. But the manuscript was named after him because he's the first known owner of the book. The book is 240 pages, but there are some pages that are missing. The composition of the book is text written from left to right, with most pages having illustrations and diagrams, and some pages even being foldable and folding out into a larger diagram. The text has been examined by so many people. I couldn't list all the people that this uh, text had been had been examined by. It had been examined by professional and amateur cryptographers, including American and British codebreakers from World War One and World War Two. But despite best efforts from a huge range of scholars, everyone, it has never been deciphered. In 1969, the Voynich Manuscript was donated to Yale University's Benecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, and that is where it remains today. (laughs) Record scratch! I'm back! And it's been no time at all for you, but it's been two hours-ish for me. I do not feel like I'm going to die anymore. Yes. Uh, Turns out that I am allergic to potpourri, which I had sitting right on the table next to me. And that would be why I felt like I was going to die. And now I threw it out and I feel much better. I feel like I can breathe. I feel like I'm not just like going to fall over. I have no idea how much from the beginning I'm going to keep because it probably makes not a whole heck of a lot of sense. Because I was, I had taken Kosser up and I was like trying not to die, but I hope that the beginning made sense because I don't want to go back over it again. We're going to pick up where we left off. And hopefully this time I won't have to stop again. <laughs> okay. 
Here are physical characteristics of the Vonich manuscript. What is a physical characteristic of a book is a codicology. Just so you know, that's a fun fact. The manuscript measures 23.5 by 16.2 by 5 centimeters, has hundreds of vellum, which is prepared animal skin or membrane, usually used for writing on, so hundreds of vellum pages, and it's collected into 18 choirs. It is roughly 240 pages, but it's really hard to count the number of pages because of all the unusual foldouts and the layout of the book. The choirs, which is a form of page measurement, has been numbered from 1 to 20 in various locations using numerals that were consistent with the 1400s. So that we do know. In the top right-hand corner of each page, the pages have been numbered from 1 to 16 using numbers from a later date. It didn't say what date, though. Um, oh, as a... If you want to follow along or you want to see it, it is available. The entire book is available online. You can go, you can look at all the pages. They recently, I think 2016, uploaded the whole book to online so everyone could have a crack at it. So if you want to go and look at it, feel free. It's likely the book had 272 pages and 20 choirs at the very least. Um, but these were already missing when Wilfred Vonich acquired the manuscript in 1912. There's also evidence that the page order today is a lot different than the original page order, and that in various points in history it was rearranged. In 2009, the University of Arizona performed a radiocarbon dating of samples of various parts of the manuscript. All samples were consistent with the manuscript having been created in 1404 to 1438, like I mentioned before. The quality of the parchment used is average at best, and in 2014, a protein test was conducted to find that the manuscript was written on calfskin, and that at least 14 or 15 entire calfskins went into creating this book. That was super common for the time period, that's not unusual at all. The binding and covers are made from goat skin, but that is not original to the manuscript. When the book was possessed by Collegio Romano, the Roman college, the binding and the covers were changed. We know this because of the discoloration and because of testing, radiocarbon testing. It's found that the book likely had a wooden cover with a tanned leather inside before it was changed. As for the ink in the book, there are many substantial drawings, diagrams, and charts, and they were colored with paint. A modern analysis by Polarized Light Microscopy, PLM, determined a quill pen and iron gall ink, which is the standard ink for the time period that the book was made, were used for the text and for the outline of the drawings and charts, etc. More interestingly, the paint that painted the drawings and diagrams was applied crudely to the ink-outlined figures, and we're almost certain that was at a later date. So the original author might have had nothing to do with painting in the drawings. Many of the quill pen and ink uh, writings have also been touched up at a later date as well, or modified using a darker ink. Speaking of the text, most of the text is in an unidentifiable language with a few pages having just a tiny bit of writing in Latin. 
The bulk of the unknown script is written from left to right, and the characters are mostly composed of one or two pen strokes. The same 20 to 25 characters are used throughout the book, and the unknown language accounts for virtually all of the text, with a few exceptions, of a few special characters appearing only once or twice each and usually on an individual page or in a certain paragraph. There is no obvious punctuation, just straight text. The text is also written fluidly and smoothly, which gives the impression that the symbols were not enciphered, as there is no delay, which you would normally see when you see an encoded text. That means whoever wrote this book wrote it easily, quickly, and fluidly, as if I, if I were to write something in English, I could write it fluidly, quickly. If I were trying to code something, I would have to keep looking at how to code it in the exact way, so there would be pauses in my writing. But there's not the pauses in this. So whoever was writing this, if it was a code, knew the code so well they could write it as fluidly as if they were writing in their own language. As I mentioned, a few words in the script are identifiable, or were not written in this unknown language. The now unreadable signature of Jacobs A. Tapans, who was a bohemian pharmacist and personal doctor to Emperor Rudolf II, was found in the book, leading us to believe that at some point he would have, might have been the owner of the book, but this was at a later date than when the book was written, so likely he was not the original creator of the book. There's also a line of writing in Latin. In the astronomical section, and we will get to all the different sections, there are names of 10 months, March to December, written in Latin with the spelling suggestive of the medieval languages of France, Northwest Italy, or the Iberian Peninsula. I'm not sure if I meant to write Iberian or Siberian. Near a drawing of a nude man is the high German phrase der Mustel, meaning a widow's share. And lastly, four lines are written in distorted Latin script, with two words in the same unknown script. The words in Latin appear to be distorted with the characteristics of the unknown language. Though the lettering resembles European alphabets from the late 14th and 15th century, the words don't make sense in any language. And whether all, any of these words were original or, ordered, or added later is still disputed and unknown. When it comes to language, one looks at the statistical patterns, which is the word flow. How does it flow? Does it flow fluidly? And that's what we're going to talk about here. The word flow follows phonological and orthographic laws. Some characters don't follow others, and ever. Some characters show up frequently, and no word is without a small group of these characters, which is similar to vowels in the English language. Many have commented on the regular and highly sophisticated structure of the words. However, Professor Gonzalo Rubio, who is an expert in ancient languages at Pennsylvania State University, stated, quote, The things we know as grammatical markers, things that occur commonly at the beginning or end of words, such as S or D in our language, and that are used to express grammar, never appear in the middle of words in the Voynich manuscript. That's unheard of for any Indo-European, Hungarian, or Finnish language, unquote. Almost no words in the manuscript have less than two characters, or more than ten, 
Some words only occur in certain sections or on certain pages. This is my own side note. To me, that sounds like a textbook. When you read a textbook and it gives, say, a definition for something, like if you were reading a textbook on horses and they talked about a quarter horse, once you move on to reading about an Appaloosa horse, you might not see the word quarter horse again. So it's possible that in this book, it was a reference book, something like that. So there's reference to this word, and then that word is never needed to be used again. There are instances in this book, though, where the same word is repeated three times in a row, or one character is repeated with an odd frequency. Cryptanalyst Elizabeth Friedman describes the double letter and wording to make analysis of the, tect of the text, quote, doomed to utter frustration. The next thing we're going to talk about is the illustrations of the book. The illustrations are used to divide the text into six different sections, since we can't divide the text or the book by the unreadable text that is in it. So each section has illustrations with different styles and supposed subject matter, except for the last section where there's just stars in the margin. So I'm going to go and break that into the different sections. Section 1, Herbal. This section shows one or two plants on each page, a format that is typical in European herbals, which is a book describing plants at the time. Of all these plants, we've only been able to identify about three or four, and it looks like a lot of it has been mismatched plants putting pieces together. Section two is astronomical. This section contains diagrams that are suggestive of astronomy or astrology, some have moons and suns and stars. In one series of 12 diagrams, what is assumed to be the zodiac is depicted, or the symbols for the zodiac, including two fish for Pisces, a bull for Taurus, a hunter with a crossbow for Sagittarius, and so on. There are also 30 women throughout this section who are attached with what could be interpreted as a tether to stars in various forms. The women are partially nude, and some of these diagrams of women attached to stars are on pages that fold out to be a larger diagram. Section 3 is Balneological, which is the science of baths or bathing. This section has dense, continuous text with figures, with mostly small nude women, some wearing crowns, bathing in pools or hot tubs connected by an elaborate system of pipes, forming an intricate design where water flows from one folio to the other. Section 4 is Cosmological. This section contains more circular diagrams, but these are more obscure. This also has foldouts, with one foldout spanning six pages, which is a map containing nine, quote, islands connected by causeways. These islands contain castles, and one island has a volcano. Section 5 is Pharmaceutical. This contains many labeled drawings of isolated plant parts, including leaves or roots, Objects that resemble apothecary jars, designs ranging from mundane to fantastical, and a few text paragraphs. And lastly, section 6 is recipes. These are full pages of broken text with a star marking each in the left margin. So what is the history of the manuscript? The very first known owner of the manuscript was George Baresh, who was a 17th century alchemist from Prague. He had been confused by the book, quote, taking up space uselessly in his library, unquote, for many years. 
A letter from 1639 is the earliest confirmed mention of the manuscript, in which Beresh was asking a man named Athanasius Kircher, who deciphers Egyptian hieroglyphics, to decipher the book. Whether he did decipher the book is unknown, but we know from letters from Beresh that he had sent him two copies of the manuscript, but Kircher kept asking for the original, and Beresh said no. When Beresh passed away, the manuscript went to his friend, Jan Marek Marcy, the then rector of Charles University in Prague. A few years later, Marcy sent the book to the original hieroglyphic, hieroglyphic guy, Critcher. Attached was a cover letter that read, Reverend and Distinguished Sir, Father in Christ. This book, bequeathed to me by an intimate friend, I destined for you, my very dear Athanasius, as soon as it came into my possession, for I was convinced that it could be read by no one except yourself. The former owner of this book asked your opinion by letter, copying and sending you a portion of the book from which he believed you would be able to read the remainder, but he at the time refused to send the book itself. To its deciphering, he devoted unflagging toil, and as is apparent from an, as is apparent from attempts of his, which I send you herewith, and he relinquished hope only with his life. But his toil was in vain, for such sphinxes as these obey no one but their master, Kircher. Except now this token, such as it is, and long overdue tonight it be, of my affection for you, and burst through its bars, if there are any, with your wanted success. Dr. Raphael, a tutor in the Bohemian language to Ferdinand III, then King of Bohemia, told me he said the book belonged to the Emperor Rudolf, and that he presented to the bearer who brought him the book 600 ducats. He believed the author was Roger Bacon, the Englishman. On this point, I suspend judgment. It is your place to define for us what view we should take thereon, to whose favor and kindness I unreversedly commit myself and remain. At the commander of your reverence, Jonas Marcus Marcy of Cronland, Prague, 19th August, 1665, or 1666, it's hard to read. This letter was still attached to the book when Wilfred Voynich acquired it. Over the next 200 years, not a lot is known about the book. It moved around a lot, but uh, the entirety of all the libraries it visited, I don't think is particularly relevant to the story. And I don't want to make this ep episode a billion years old, so I'm going to skip to when the Society of Jesus, or the Collegio Romano, was short money and decided to sell some of its holdings discreetly to the Vatican Library. The sale took place in 1912, but not all of the manuscripts went to the Vatican. Wilfred Voynich acquired 30 manuscripts, one of which was the later named Voynich Manuscript. Voynich spent the next seven years trying to get scholars to decipher the manuscript while he worked on discovering its origins. After it passed hands a few times after Voynich's, pass Voynich's passing, the book now sits in the Yale University Library, like I mentioned in the beginning. So... What we're all wondering, who the heck wrote the Voynich Manuscript? There are tons of theories on this. And I, there's so many theories of who wrote the book and each one is detailed. I decided to go with six, I guess, because to try and read off all of them, it would take forever. And each one did dive fairly deeply into why it was believed that this was the person who wrote it. But I'm just going to keep it down to the small six because I'm still having trouble breathing, apparently. It's the because I'm sitting next to the garbage and the potpourri is in the garbage and it's just leaking out trying to get 
into my brain. Okay. Theory zero, since it's not about who wrote it. It was written as a hoax, is the theory. Thought because of the crazy repeating words and letters and how no one can extract meaning from the book. And there's likely likely no meaningful content in the first place. In April 2007, a study was conducted and published by Austrian researcher Andreas Schinner. They concluded the text was consistent with meaningless gibberish, though many scholars believe that the manuscript's text is too sophisticated to be a hoax and was created with too much intention. As well, the language structures we know now are not, were not known at the time of the creation of the manuscript, so if it were a hoax, it would have had to have been so elaborate to get the language structuring right, it would be far too... It, there's no way it was a hoax. It, it's far too advanced. I don't believe this theory. I'm just throwing it out there because, of course, it's a popular theory that it was a hoax. Which leads to actual theory one. Voynich fabricated the manuscript himself. Being an antique book dealer and having that vast knowledge, some people believe Voynich created this priceless artifact himself. However, the carbon dating of the manuscript eliminates the possibility that it was created at the time when Voynich was alive, the early 1900s. And the theoretics that that much calfskin parchment paper was around unused for that long of a time period is just it's unheard of there is no unused journals like that just sitting around and he would have to have worked so hard to create that kind of ruse with an entirely other language and structure it doesn't make sense Voynich was a priceless book dealer he bought and sold antique books and he had a fortune in selling antique books I don't believe that he would have created this whole ruse and then gone on to study it for so long and put aside his book dealings to try and find the origins of this manuscript, it doesn't make sense to me. I give that theory a zero out of five. <laughs> zero out of ten. It's a zero. I don't believe it. Theory two. Giovanni Fontana. Italian engineer Giovanni Fontana's illustrations resemble those in the Voynich manuscript. Fontana was also familiar with cryptography and used it to write the information on machines that he developed, though it was a simple cipher and not the complex cipher that the manuscript has. I give this one a 1 out of 5. Um, if you go onto Instagram at Telegnosis and T, or look at the Telegnosis Pod Instagram or Twitter at Telegnosis Pod, you can see that the drawings do look pretty similar between Giovanni Fontana and the Voynich manuscript. But he used a very simple coded language, basically easily decoded by anyone. This manuscript was herbal-based, first of all, so it wasn't engineering-based, which Giovanni Fontana was. And it was seemingly an entirely different language. So for him to just develop this way of cryptography and only use it once seems kind of weird. Theory three. Antonio Avellino. Antonio was born in Florence, Italy, where he trained as a craftsman. He acquired the more well-known name Filarete, which means lover of virtue in the 15th century. He was expelled from Rome after he was accused of attempting to steal the head of John the Baptist. He moved around all over the world to places such as Venice and Milan, 
but he passed away back in Rome in 1469. He was an architect known for building things such as the Sforza Castle in Milan and the Ospial Maggiore. So what does this architect have to do with the Voynich Manuscript? He was also extremely interested in cryptography, specifically in the transposition of ciphers and was friends with powerful cryptographer Sico Simonetta. The carbon dating and use of the materials that are in the manuscript would be consistent with what Antonio would have used. However, that's it. That's where the end of the theory is. He wasn't into medicine, which is what the book is widely believed to be about. And the only thing that really points that it might have been him was that he was super into cryptography and fits the time period. He didn't create any cryptography. He was just into it during the time period. Theory four is the letter-based cipher theory. The text is meaningful in a European language that was intentionally rendered obscure. The problem is, though, with this theory, that the only writing we know of that shows these symbols is this manuscript. All other manuscripts of the era show nothing of the same writing or symbols. So this theory also goes on to say perhaps it's a lost people. This manuscript might have been created by people who no longer exist anymore, and this might be the one surviving artifact. It's possible. I mean, anything is possible. But I feel we would know about another European civilization that was that advanced. I mean, 600 years ago is a long time ago, but it's also not in the grand scheme of things. So to think that there was a whole other culture with a fully different language and writing system that still had access to the same utensils, like writing utensils or writing pieces that we have, it's hard to imagine. So that brings us to theory five, which is the theory that I choose to believe, and that is aliens made it. Some people believe that the book holds the key to extraterrestrial life, and obviously this is the theory I choose to believe. There's a lot of evidence for it to be linked to aliens. The fluid writing, the pictures of plants we've never seen before. The belief is that an alien may have landed on Earth in the 1400s and knew that humans didn't have the knowledge to be able to send the alien back to their planet. So they were chronicling their life on Earth in this book. More interestingly, some people believe that the pictures that are in the book, the plants, could be pictures of the alien themselves. I mean, why do they have to be humanoid? The book could be plants from an alien's planet that the alien wanted to document or write about. Maybe they missed their old planet. So that's that's the theory I'm going with. So to wrap it all up, the manuscript could be literally just about anything. It could hold the key to the entire alien world, or it's a silly gibberish prank that is still being pulled on us today. We may never know, but I am going to keep on believing that it was aliens. (laughs) That's all for today. Thanks for putting up with my scratchy voice, and I'm going to have to cut out a lot of coughing, apparently. But we made it! Hooray! If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, please check out our Instagram at TellingnosisNT, and follow us on Twitter at TellingnosisPod. You can also find us at TellingnosisNT.com. That is where you can submit listener stories. I want to hear some of those creepy stories that have happened to you. It could be true crime. It could be aliens. It could be supernatural. It could be 
a conspiracy theory you think is really cool or might have seen in the works, like a Mandela effect. I want to know. You got something creepy? Send it to me in a listener episode email. Go on to tellingnosisandtea.com and that's where you can do it. Also, feel free to join our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash tellingnosisandtea or you can just search tellingnosisandtea on Patreon where we are going to have more and more exclusive things you don't want to miss. Thank you for listening, and I guess the next episode's going to be our uh, Christmas special, so I'll talk to you guys then. Bye!